You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Today, my guest is Brian Becker. He is currently the head of Internet Dispute Resolution section at WIPO. Brian is a good friend of mine and a colleague. We started together at WIPO exactly on the same day. Our careers have moved in parallel, but we still remain very good friends. In this chat, he talks about his experience growing up in the Midwest and how he decided to go to law school and eventually he came to Geneva. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Take it away, Brian. Thank you for joining us. I'm here today with a really good friend and colleague. Uh, we actually began our careers, I think, on the same day here at WIPO. That was like uh, 10, 12 years ago. But uh, he's a good friend. We still remain in touch. Our, car, our careers have uh, proceeded in parallel very much, but uh, it's always nice to, to see him. He's now currently the head of internet dispute section at, uh, at WIPO, at the uh, WIPO Arbitration and Mediation Center. And I'm really pleased to have here my colleague, Brian Beckham. How are you today, Brian? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. I'm very, very honored to be here. And yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting. I was thinking um, about what, what you said we started. I remember I flew from the U.S. on uh, 7707, ah. and I think we, we must have started August 1st? or July. Yeah, August 1st, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I remember, actually, I walked into the office and you were already there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing that like we started on the same day and we still remain friends, and uh, you still are at the center, where there was a bit of... Uh, like a period where you left, but then you came back. But we'll get into that. So, just uh, you're originally from Ohio. That's right, Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. That's the the Midwest. The Midwest, yeah. And and some people in Geneva know it because Procter and Gamble is based out of Cincinnati, and then Procter and Gamble has their European headquarters, I believe, here in Geneva. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. And uh, how was life there? It was, you know, growing up, I thought it was boring. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess every every kid probably thinks where they grew up is boring. Um, so yeah, growing up, I wanted to uh, I wanted to get out to California. That was, you know, being California. from the Midwest, that was like the place to go. And uh, and when I was when I was graduating college, thinking about the future. I was thinking about law school, and I, um, I actually applied to, I think you were allowed six applications with your, um, with your, with your SAT. test, and uh, the, the, and and then after that you had to pay more. So I, I think I applied for five in California and one in Chicago, and um, ended up uh, having a really good chat with my grandpa about sort of why was I going and what did I want to get out of it and and also thinking about being closer to my family I could drive home for Thanksgiving that sort of thing um, and so I ended up going to Chicago to Don Marshall because uh, it was it was closer and and at the time they had at the time I was interested in copyrights during law school I got into 
computers, music, programming, that sort of thing, never actually doing the programming, but just trying to kind of learn a little bit about the, the basics of what's, what's involved in computing, uh, tinkering a little bit, building, building a computer. And um, so I, I found this law school in Chicago that was close enough to home and had a good specialty in yeah, IP. Yeah, that's correct. And so that was, that was why I decided to sort of stop short of heading all the way to the West Coast. And uh, so you always wanted to become a lawyer? No, actually, when I was, when I grew up, my dad was in home building. Yeah. And, uh, and so we would go with him on weekends. A lot of times, um, contractors would kind of skip out on, on jobs. They would get advance payments and, and then just, you know, leave town. And so we would have to go in and, and kind of finish the job. So anything from, you know, putting up some drywall to putting the trim around the windows and doors, uh, you name it, we, we probably did it all. And, uh, and and I really didn't like it, you know, as a way to spend my weekends as a kid. Uh, but somehow it seemed to have, um, you know, sunk in as a, as a as a positive memory because in high school, I actually went to uh, a Sycamore High School in Cincinnati, where uh, at the time it was pretty unique as far as I knew. We had architecture program, oh. and so having kind of been around the houses, uh, moving from the the you know the nuts and bolts of, of you know, uh, tinkering with, with the houses, I thought about drawing the plans for them. And so I actually took, by the time I finished high school, I had two and a half years of architecture classes under my belt. We had, we had uh, designed house plans from A to Z, built a balsa wood model. I, I really loved it. I loved the, the kind of seeing the drawing come together into a tangible product. And so I thought architecture was where I wanted to go. Yeah. And in Cincinnati, where I grew up, they had one of the top, top I think maybe five or, or even better architecture programs in the nation. Okay. And so I had applied for that. I didn't get in uh, because my class rank in high school wasn't high enough. I um, admittedly didn't really put too much, <laughs> too much effort in high school, um, so I, I I didn't really. I think you had to be in the top ten percent of your class, and and I wasn't that. Architecture is an undergrad. Is an undergrad, yeah. yeah. And they had a really famous program. Uh, you you would actually intern there, and and you know a lot of people get jobs from that. And so because I couldn't get into the architecture program, I shifted gears a little bit and I got into the, I can't remember the exact term, but the, the kind of graphic design program. Yeah. And so I did that for my first year, which I really enjoyed, uh, we, you know, learning the basics of how colors work together and shapes and designs and that sort of thing. And a couple of things from that, really, it's interesting how things, you know, stick with you and you pick up things over, over your life and career. Because I remember uh, when we were learning about the kind of the basics of, of shapes and colors, the, one of the professors showed us the, the FedEx logo, which yeah. had the, the purple and the orange, and pointing out how in between the E and the X, you had an arrow. And, and your eye was drawn to that because the way the colors worked together and, and the shape was kind of buried in there. And apparently that was done by a student who was um, you know, in, in that program and I ended up not making the cut for the second year uh, for the design program, so I ended up shifting gears to philosophy and political science. Yeah, yeah, I remember you mentioning that. Yeah, uh, which, which I also really enjoyed, I, you know, kind of talking about the kind of intersection of, of thought 
thought and policy and law, you know, the, the kind of normative discussions. And I think a lot of that underpins the law. Yeah. Um, and so um, shifted gears into philosophy and political science. And, um, and, uh, and I remember when I, I, so I transferred, I started off at University of Cincinnati and I transferred up to Ohio University where I also uh, picked up my love for mountain biking. Uh, I remember my friend Abe and I, we had worked together in high school at a restaurant and, and we, he had a, a kind of really beater old mountain bike and I saw it in his dorm room and I had one back home and I, and I thought I'll go get mine and, and we'll go out after class and we would ride around in our cotton t-shirts and shorts and we would see the guys in the spandex with all the proper gear and bikes and we would laugh and think we're you know, never be never like that. those guys. <laughs> so, I, so this was the, the beginning of this uh, interest of you, did you have in cycling? Yeah, and I remember I got my... Um, my overage check from from in in the U.S. you get a, a lot of people get a loan for school, yeah. and so they give you an extra I don't know one or two thousand dollars to buy books and food and things. You bought a bike, and I <laughs> bought a bike, which was I remember it was seven hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> I I um I told my dad and 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 he said he said what is the thing dipped in gold? <laughs> and uh, I think the bikes have gotten more expensive since then. Yeah, well now they have some fancy. I'm sure you now have also something really nice. Yeah, it's 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 I I love it. it. I mean, it's a way to kind of keep fit. You get out and see nature, and you know, just kind of connect. <clears throat> and here, it's a really nice place to do that. It's beautiful. It's it's one of the reasons I've stuck around so long. Uh, you know, because when you and I came here, we were on on short-term contracts. Yeah, I was gonna get to that. So, uh, so then your major was a. Uh, Political science, or so political science uh, minor and philosophy major, and okay. and that steered me towards the law. And and you, how how did you go to law school? Was it something that you did uh, a few years after, or was it immediate after your undergrad degree? So I took a year off. I was during college. I worked for one summer at a road construction company. Uh, a friend of mine in college. He was actually a roommate one year. Uh, worked at this place, and uh, you could make quite good money out there on on the roads, on the highways, moving cones but, but around. That, that and is things. difficult. No, when you start making money, you, you don't want to go back to to being a student. <laughs> It's true. I definitely sensed a fork in the road because um, you know, being I guess uh, maybe just over 20 or something, and and you see how you can you know you see the guys that are doing this. They're they're in their 30s maybe, and they've got a house and a car or a truck, whatever. And you think, hmm, uh, you know, there's a fork in the road here, and, and maybe I'll maybe I'll take that one, or maybe I'll go into into education further and see where that takes me. And um, it, it wasn't it wasn't an obvious answer at first um, because you know, growing up, I, I sort of that was my universe, and, and I thought I could yeah. kind of see myself, and, and you kind of picture the neighborhood you grew up in, and the house next to your parents, that sort of thing, and, and you kind of stay close to your siblings. That's usually what most people do. It is. I remember there was um, uh, um, Aziz Ansari was on on the Hidden Brain podcast. I guess it was about a year ago, and they were talking about relationships and how if you looked back 50 or, or more years, most people they would kind of you know marry someone who you know lived down the street, went to their high school, and, and I think our our world's expanded a lot over over the past 50 and, and 30 years. Yeah. But I, I still, yeah, it's true. Most of the people, but 
I mean, your experience, my experience are pretty unique. Like, I mean, you are from the U.S. and now you're here living in Geneva. That doesn't happen to many people. Not many people actually seek that. Like, it's not something that people actively want to do. No, and I, I, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because I always thought it was maybe more of a U.S. thing. And now that we're here in Europe, it's, it's easier to travel to different countries because they're, they're smaller and they're closer than in the States. We have, you know, the States and the U.S. itself is, is quite large. Um, I don't think I even had a passport until I was in law school. Yeah. And, I, and I think the reason I only got one was because my dad had married... Um, a Colombian woman in they had met in Florida and lived there for I think 10 or so years and decided to move to Colombia and so I, I had to get a passport to go down to, to, visit. to visit them for Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah yeah it's true like I, I also here in, in Europe many people don't actually have passport and they travel from country to country without passport I mean now it's a new reality but uh, so then after you decided uh, okay I will go back to school it was law school like you wanted to become a lawyer yeah I think that that was like I say when I was when I was um, I was starting to kind of during that time get a little bit into computers taking them apart putting them together you know at the time they had these uh, computers with with the clear plastic windows and neon lights and, yeah. and water cooling <laughs> and all that nonsense and getting into gaming and that sort of thing um, so that that sort of tipped me a little bit into the copyright world, um, also interested in, in music and art. And so I, I thought that would be an interesting place to, to kind of take the next step. Would, Did you end up doing any work in that area? Ironically, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I think I had maybe one or two survey courses in law school on trademarks. I actually had a course on the UDRP. Ah, you did. Uh, there, there was a. I learned about the UDRP when I came here. I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, I had. Um, well, one of my professors was uh, a guy called David Sorkin, who's actually uh, still today on our on yeah. our roster of experts. Yeah. And the the course itself uh, on on the UDRP was taught by uh, still a, a friend to this day, a guy Bob Gerwin, who's out in uh, Washington mm -hmm. D.C. At the time, I think he was at a law firm in in Detroit, uh, and then worked over to. Uh, AOL, I think now it's called Oath, or maybe even something new over in D.C. And uh, when I was in D.C., we would we would catch up every now and again. So it's in in a way, it's a it's a really big world and a really small world. Yeah, it's true. I also got into into the the law because of copyright, but I did not end up working in anything. I mean. It got me here, but I've never really done much in that area. I think what I found was we. So when I when I graduated, I I ended up working at a at a small firm at, outside of Washington D.C. in in Virginia, and most of the clients were were big nonprofits, small nonprofits, um, you know, churches, charities, that sort of thing, and so. We did a I did a little bit of work. I know the firm did bigger work, um, but I did a little bit of work with one of these uh, organizations coming up with their IP policy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, a lot of copyrights would be generated. If you imagine you have a, a, a mega church where you have a pastor who's delivering sermons, writing books, doing videos, that sort of thing. So a lot of a lot of content can be generated and, and sold. And so working through you know assigning some of that to the to the church and, and what does it mean for the salaries and all that sort of thing. 
But I found that in, in the firm itself, I think when I was there, I was there about two years, there was one copyright litigation case, mm. but most of the day-to-day transactional work was with trademark clients. Yeah. That, that's what happens to most. Uh, they want to do other kind of work, maybe some patents also, but the, the bulk is usually trademark. Yeah. That was one thing, being especially in Chicago, it felt, although I, I imagine it's, it's the same in, in, in other places, Silicon Valley, New York, wherever. Um, certainly it felt like the focus in IP was on patents. You would hear about an IP event, oh, and, and, and you would go, and then it would be all patent think, things. Yeah, yeah, and, you yeah. would think, and, and you did start to think over time, how important is this copyright stuff? What, you know, have, I, have I made the right decision? Um, and, and, and it's true. I think it's, it's less kind of, you know, there are obviously some famous cases. There could be somebody, you know, accusing someone of ripping off a, a riff in a tune or, or a, you know, idea for a movie or a book or something. But, but trademarks are in front of us every day. It's, yeah. it's on the back of your phone. It's on your car. It's on your clothes. I mean, I don't have any, I don't, didn't mean to say that I have something against trademarks. I, but I do prefer copyright. And that was the reason why I got into this. I'm still hoping to get into that at some point. <laughs> I, I think yeah, I think that I, I, I share the same view. I mean, I, I would still very much enjoy copyrights and, and still try to kind of keep an eye on what's going on in the world. That said, I, I really enjoy trademarks. I remember uh, after law school, I ended up in D.C. I, I had the kind of good fortune of I did, along with my J.D., I did an LLM. And so it meant... Is that something that is common? Because usually... American students, they usually like they do the JD and the LLM is more for international students. Yeah, it does tend to be, I think, a lot of international students, a lot of people who would, we also had some kind of joint degree programs where you would have people who, let's say, you worked for 10 or 20 years in you whatever industry and, and you wanted to kind of specialize and mm-hmm. so you get an LLM or a kind of a specialized one-year degree, kind of a joint program. Um, no, it was it was quite unique amongst at least you know kind of thinking back amongst my friend group I I can't remember maybe one or two other people did it out of a class of I think about 250 people Um, the thing that really got me interested was there was a a class I saw offered over the summer after my first year on spam and email marketing and that Mm -hmm. kind of brought me a little bit closer to the to the kind of copyright uh, roots because it had to do with computing and IT so I took that class. That was a class offered by uh, uh, by David Sorkin, and it happened to be an LLM class offered over the summer. And that kind of got me looking into what what is this LLM and what are the course offerings. And there were a lot of course offerings, uh, really kind of specializing in IP and IT more than you know. In in law school in the U.S., you it's a bit like undergrad. You get a, a broad kind of foundational yeah. education, and so this was an opportunity to really you know, sink my teeth into some of those more more specialized courses. Uh, so then I, I thought, well, this is this is you know maybe not quite the uh, the the right way to look at it in terms of you know having a passion for it. But I thought, well, I'm paying a certain amount of tuition, and I can take a certain number of courses mm-hmm. with that tuition. So I thought, maximize. well, I'm going to try to maximize the number of <laughs> courses I can take, and I can oh, yeah. take these, get this LLM, get some specialty and some IP and IT courses. And so I, I sort of started off down that path, uh, which meant I was taking a little bit of a heavier course load than some of my colleagues. 
Um, but then my last semester of law school, because I, I think by that time I had already finished my JD, or maybe I had one class still left to do. And so out of my four or five classes that last semester, all but one of them were paper courses. And uh, fortunately, my, my one exam happened to be, I think, on the first day of exams. And, and we had a two or three week period for all of the people to take their exams. So I had effectively a little bit of a vacation while everyone else was cramming for <laughs> exams and, and, and taking these tests. So I, I went out to D.C. to visit my brother, uh, who was living there at the time. And I, I took a week or two just to kind of go around and meet people in the area. So I, I you know, arranged through friends and colleagues and mentors to meet with, you know, somebody on the Hill, somebody in a think tank, somebody at a law firm, somebody in the health and human services, that sort of thing. So just to kind of get a feel for, for what's going on around D.C., what kind of opportunities there could be. Because I think I, I sensed that, you know, in Chicago, there's certainly a strong IP community. A lot of it is focused on patents. There's some really strong trademark presences there. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, like, TV production, theater, music. TV, radio, music, theater, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know why I felt that, you know, it was worth checking out D.C. Mm. And, and so I went out there and I ended up meeting with a bunch of people, one of whom was um, uh, the trademark office. One of the guys uh, who helped coach my moot court competition um, had worked at the, <clears throat> excuse me, at the trademark office for a few years. And so he put me in touch with someone there. We went and chatted. I ended up getting an inter internship there. And I remember... So I, I went out to D.C. after law school and did this internship with the PTO, thinking that I would land a job at the PTO. And I remember the first weekend after having worked there, I went to Costco with my brother, and, and I was like a deer in the headlights just looking around at all the, all the labels on products. Yeah. Because, we, you know, they had assigned us, we would help out basically the examining attorneys uh, if, if they wanted evidence that something was, you know, had a reputation in the market or there mm. was a crowded market or whatever. Um, so we would just sort of look around for different specimens of use and how things were used in, in, you know, by consumers, that sort of thing. And I remember just looking around, being fascinated with all the all the labels on all yeah. the products yeah. and just the, the shapes and the colors and the and the terms themselves. And I remember going back and, and having coffee with my boss at the time and and just expressing this fascination. And he, he said, yeah, once you once you start to work in the field of trademarks, you'll you'll never look at shopping the same. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's really true. Even nowadays, I've thought, you know, growing up, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And so my mom would, for example, buy like the store brand cereal or something. And I remember as a child, you think, but I want the Frosted Flakes, not the, not the Kroger <laughs> yeah, no, brand. I you saw on TV. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and now being an adult and, and you know, having to, to sort my Take own work. budget in, and I think... <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the store brand. Exactly. <laughs> That's funny that you mentioned because like I I I don't remember when I became aware of trademarks, but I think uh, in comparison to my daughter who's like six year old, she seems to be like aware of everything. I don't know if she realizes that I've explained it to her, but I don't know if she actually realizes what that means. But she can tell apart like the 
the businesses and the trademarks just by looking at them. And sometimes I test her, and she knows, <laughs> like, yeah, this is this, this is that. And I don't think, I, for me, I think it came at a later stage. But you're right, now that I somehow in the field, like, everything I see is trademarks. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so then when, when, you, when you were in Washington, how did you get over here to Geneva? So I, I was at this firm doing mostly trademark prosecution, also helping out with, with uh, some of the, the kind of legal work, behind the scenes work for, for the nonprofit clients. And during college, I had taken French. You had to, at my university, you had to take a foreign language yeah. as part of your requirements to graduate. And I, and I took French uh, for no particular reason. And I passed on an opportunity to do a study abroad uh, when, I was, when I was in university. And when the opportunity came up to come over to Geneva, at the time it was meant to be a one-year internship. I, yeah, remember I remember quite clearly talking with Eric, who's, who's still over there now, and he was saying, this is, this is a one-year internship and, and that's it. It was made really clear. Made very clear. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, okay, well, th this will be kind of a, an opportunity to do the study abroad that I never did. Yeah. I'll, I'll go to another part of the world. Uh, I, at, at the time, I was already into... Uh, cycling, and I thought that'll be really cool to go see some of the places where they ride in the Tour de France and so on. And uh, so I, I talked with the firm and, and said, this is an opportunity I think it'd be really cool to, to undertake. So uh, we even talked about the possibility of after the end of that year coming back. And ironically, the we had one client, I, I can't remember who it was, I think it was maybe a, a pastor at some big church, somebody had registered some domain names and, and had put up some, some websites that they didn't like. And so literally a couple of weeks before I, I ended up finding this opportunity, uh, or I should say maybe it found me, um, we had looked into how to prepare a UDRP case, and so we had started to sketch out the the kind of outline of filing one of these cases. And little did I know that I would I would come over here and actually uh, <laughs> manage those cases for a few years. And uh, just going back, you mentioned that when you were in high school, you were not a like a, you didn't get good grades. Uh, how was your experience in law school? Were you like a good student? Much better, I think. In high school, I. I I don't think I got bad grades. I think I probably averaged out with a B or something, hmm. but um, that was with, with um, pretty minimal effort. <laughs> um, in, in law school, I think I, I started to realize, look, I mean, this is, I, I'm, I'm paying for this. This is an investment in myself. This is, you know, my future, and, and, and either I take it seriously or, or do something else, I yeah. mean, quite simply. And, and so I, I did. I took it really seriously. I also, frankly, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you yeah. know, not all of it. Some of it, uh, you know, you have different subjects that you really gravitate towards. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. And I remember um, uh, during my first year, I had a contracts class. And I had um, a bit of a dispute with a with a employer back in Cincinnati. And I had... They had owed me some money, so I had did some research online and, and found the statute of limitations for contracts in Ohio and this sort of thing. And I put together a, a little half a page contract to say that they um, that they recognized that they owed me money and they would pay me and so on. And so I took it to my professor and I and I said, uh, you know, do you mind having a quick look at this? What do you think? He said, oh, this is this is great. It looks like you actually you know did some research and put some thought into it and. 
And so we kind of got to talking about, you know, what what does the future hold, and and how do I sort of you know get on a path towards, frankly, finding employment. Yeah. And and he he looked at me, just very matter of factly, and he said, "Well, are you going to be on the law review or not?" And I I said, "Well, how on earth would I know?" And he said, "Well, you know." And I said, "Well, I don't know. We haven't got our grades yet. You have yeah. to you have to kind of it's a competition and so on." Uh, anyways, to make a long story short, I ended up on not the, the law review, which was sort of a general um, uh, subject matter publication, but on a specialized law review called the Journal of Computer and Information Law. Oh. And I, I was really lucky because a, a good friend of mine, Ronak, was the, we called it the solicitation um, editor, some some journals call it the lead articles editor, but basically you do all of the intake yeah. uh, for, for people that want to get in your in your publication and and I was able to kind of come alongside him because he was I think at the time maybe in his um, can't remember second or third year but anyways it was clear that he was going to leave at some point and so they were yeah, looking for over. a replacement so he was sort of training me up to take that role and so I had uh, the the very good fortune of not only getting this position which I loved because you got to see you know, interesting yeah. academic yeah. articles people were submitting to to your journal to get published, but I also skipped a lot of times in in these in these law review circles. You'll have to basically go through kind of um, uh, a hazing period where for for one semester you'll have to proofread articles and check citations and all that sort of yeah. thing. And I and I got a pass on all that, um, which which I think. Probably some of my, my peers We're didn't love, but, um, <laughs> but we had a need for someone to just hit the ground running yeah. and, and, and take on this role, and I loved it. Um, I also was was really fortunate that the class that I mentioned earlier with uh, with David Sorkin on spam and email marketing, this was being an LLM course. It was a, a paper course. And so at some point along the way, he mentioned that uh, they were thinking of... of Taking some of the papers from this course and doing a special edition of the of the journal and, and publishing them, and so I thought, well, that would be fantastic. I'm gonna I'm gonna really have a go at this. And so I, I found a topic that I thought was relevant, uh, some some cases that were kind of going through the courts at the time, and and wrote on them. And I had uh, another professor, Barry Kozak, who was in charge of the employee benefits program at the time. He was um, sort of sitting in on the course with us. And and we ended up hitting it off, and he really helped me kind of hone the article from something, you know, more academic to slightly more practical. Although looking now in the rearview mirror, it's still very much in the academic <laughs> camp, but um, but really sort of helped ask critical questions and and you know point me in the right direction. And I and I did get that article published, and that sort of got the ball rolling. I had. A lot of success there. I was, um, I think, I was able to get four articles published before I before I graduated. Yeah, I remember when I when I was in the states, I I had access to LexisNexis, and for whatever reason, I came across one of them. I remember I wrote uh, to you. Yeah. I was like, ah, Brian, I came across this article. I don't remember what it was exactly. I think I had one. My brother actually, he he, a couple of years back, looked up, and I think one I wrote on form selection clauses. They they were a bit archaic at the time, but I think more relevant nowadays. Yeah. Um, uh, was actually cited by a court or two, and then the one that I found really interesting, which was the one that was my my kind of write on to the journal, was on. 
I think it was called Can the RIAA Survive Substantial Non-Infringing Uses? So oh. this was the this was the Sony Betamax doctrine yeah, yeah, yeah. of, uh, and 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 I thought this was a really interesting topic at the time. This was when you had Napster and Grokster and LimeWire. I don't I don't know what the what the platforms are called nowadays. Um, but but I thought that was a really interesting question to look into, and and it's funny to kind of look at the work you're doing now and, and look back and and sort of see how your views evolve over time. And I have to say, you know, in that paper, my kind of core takeaway was even at that time, this was quite a few years back now, there was technology where you could, you know, ID copyrighted works and sort of apply yeah. filters. And so to me, there was an interesting idea about, you know, how are these how are these platforms designed in a way that either allows them to, you know, filter or address after the fact claimed infringements or not? And I and I think that's still re- very relevant nowadays. You know, when you look at platforms like Amazon or YouTube, and and, and there's a really important element of of system design uh, that that has a lot of legal repercussions. Yeah, yeah. It, it has evolved, but I, I actually remember talking about this article with you while we were sharing an office. Uh, but I didn't get exactly how you... Uh, was was the opportunity to come to Univa something that you saw somewhere, or...? Not at all. I was, I was, so I was working in D.C., and uh, another friend from school, uh, Stacy Calamaras, she was... Um, at, I can't remember the name of the firm at the time, but we... We knew we were in the same city, so we caught up a few times, had dinner, went out, and, and there was um, another colleague from law school, Zubaida, who was here yeah, at the I time. Remember her. And I guess coming up to the end of her one or two or whatever it was years, and they needed a replacement. And as you and I both know well now, uh, they they need people who can, at whatever time, have has particular language or background skills, yeah. and it happened to be at the time a native English speaker with a with a U.S. training, and so uh, we just ended up in touch with each other, and uh, so they they were looking for a U.S. trained attorney. I see. <coughs> so it was um, very much a, a matter of of uh, the the stars aligning. It yeah, wasn't, yeah. I, I don't think I would have ever heard of it or sought it out. Yeah, and that's precisely why I'm interested because everyone you talk to everyone and they all have a different story about how they got into this. And it still applies now, and now that I get uh, contacted by people who want to get into this business, or yeah, sometimes I I have to tell them that everyone has a different and unique story. It's it's funny. I remember in law school. So now, having been here for some years, you'll occasionally get people to reach out to you on on LinkedIn or by email or or whatever, and and say, you know, I'd really love to come work at WIPO or work in Geneva or you know, kind of get in your field. Do you have any tips for how to how to sort of land there? And of course, there there are some obvious things. You know, in terms of the, you know, kind of following the subject matter, coursework, that sort of thing, internships. But for me, one thing that really stuck with me was in law school. We had a guy come and do one of these lunch sessions where where they kind of you know entice the law students in with free pizza, and then you hear a speaker talk about some topic. <laughs> And this guy was a, a, he was some sort of a lawyer agent to some famous uh, movie stars. And so he kind of gave his, his presentation on, on how, you know, what he did, what his daily work was like. And then at the end, of course, all the, the hands shot up and, and the, 
the burning question on everyone's mind was, how do, I, yeah. how do I become an agent to the stars and a famous lawyer for Hollywood people, whatever? <laughs> and he just sort of laughed, and he said, I, I, I wouldn't have the foggiest idea how to tell you. I, I was doing, I, I can't remember exactly, I think he said he was doing real estate law out in, in L.A. or something, and <clears throat> had a client who had a, a nephew or a son or, or some, something like that who had a band, and they, had, uh, they needed a, a contract for a gig they were doing or, or something fairly incidental. They knew. And, and he frankly did it as a favor yeah, to this yeah. guy, and, and then it was just sort of a matter of one thing leading to another. And, and so I think it's, it's just to say you can have a passion and you can, you, can, uh, you can try to put pieces in place, but there's also a way that things unfold that you just can only see in hindsight. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and I've heard many stories like that, my own stories like that. Uh, but I want to ask you a bit about, because my experience, and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, my experience was when, when I was studying in the U.S. In the U.S., they don't really, I would even dare to say, they don't even care much about intergovernmental organizations. It's not something that it's looked uh, practically in a, any other country of the world, When you talk about intergovernmental organizations, everyone is like in awe of them, and they think like, "Oh, the work that they're doing is amazing, and this is great." But I don't get the sense that that was the case in the U.S. Is this uh, this was when I was there? I don't know, five, six years ago. But I don't know if that was also your impression. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's true, and I don't know quite what explains it. Maybe. Part of it is is being a little insular. Uh, like I said, you know, I didn't have a passport until I was in law school. Part of it is, <coughs> for better or worse, I feel, I, I, I don't think I knew of, I think I might have learned of, of WIPO when I did the research for um, the one client that had the UDRP case or when I had the UDRP seminar class in law school. But I don't know if you would have asked me if I would have known about many IGOs, except for maybe the ones that you would see on, on some sort of a campaign on TV or radio, you know, the kind of humanitarian, yeah. you know, UNHCR, UNICEF, this sort of thing. Um, <coughs> I think there's a, there's a perception in the U.S. That, uh, that, that the U.N. is, on the one hand, inefficient, and, and on the other hand, sort of requires certain kind of deals to be done in a way, you know, a lot of what you see in the news nowadays with, uh, you know, Donald Trump saying that the U.S. needs to renegotiate trade deals with China or Mexico and Canada, this sort of thing. I think rightly or wrongly, there's a perception that, uh, that you know, when the U.S. has to go into this international fora that, that you know, deals are done that aren't in the full best interest and, and there's sort of a lot of compromises made. And I think, frankly, it's it, in some ways it's an uninformed view. I mean, that's the nature of global geopolitics. I mean, it, it yeah. requires compromise. Obviously, everyone wants the best for themselves, for their country, for their neighbors. <coughs> um, but it's true. I think that um, there's certainly, a, I would say, the kind of prevailing viewpoint is that, and part of it, frankly, is probably a little bit of self-reflection. If you... You know, you look at what's going on in U.S. politics nowadays with this whole notion of 
uh, on the one hand, you have the kind of the idea of the deep state, and on the other hand, the idea of drain the swamp. And so I think maybe it's a reflection of what's going on at home. Yeah. You know, people see bureaucratic inefficiency, waste, this sort of thing, and so they think it must happen, you know, exponentially on a global level when you come to the UN. <coughs> because the view, I mean, I didn't want to get too political about this, but I just wanted to say that in the experience, like in, I think the view is opposite in other countries. They think that, well, maybe there's some inefficiency and corruption here, but this is surely not the case in, in international fora. Yeah, and I think probably a good deal of it has to do with the fact that, you know, whether you look at, at this organization or others, um, you know, the U.S. And, and, you know, privileged Western countries, they do tend to be donors yeah. for these organizations. And so rather than being the they want kind of direct recipient, they, they feel that they're kind of, you know, that's helping right. others. Yeah. It's true. Like you say, they want accountability. I think that's 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 um, that's only appropriate. Um, but it really it it's I think maybe partially also driven by the fact that uh, it, I, there's a lot of of you know really great people and and kind of local charities in the U.S. I mean I think for example when I go home and uh, go to to church with my mom and brother and they you know they they would showcase that they've worked with you know this local charity for people who have this problem or or whatever and so there's a lot of uh there's a lot of people who really do have this spirit of of kind of you know helping their neighbor but it it's where you have a kind of a tangible direct result uh, i think somehow it, it it registers in a different way than if you're you through your taxes through your government is giving money to some far off yeah. country and and it's hard for you to see the the positive impact of of you know the US being involved in in these IGOs yeah yeah it's true and uh so when you arrived here like you said we we kind of were told it was like a one year thing I also had my plan to go back to to Mexico then I don't know, for whatever reason, this was uh, extended. And uh, you were here for a couple of years after I left. And then uh, you left. You left. Yeah, I think I, I think I stuck around for about five and a half years. And I think the reason why probably there were a lot of things happening in the background, you know, institutionally with, with contracts and HR, but, you know, also... I think as not to pat ourselves on the back, but you know we we stuck around because we were we were good assets i mean we yeah, yeah, yeah. we kicked butt i think i remember <laughs> I remember sitting in in the office in the cam building and and at the time uh you know you would you would finish a case and then you would get assigned another one, and sometimes you felt overwhelmed and we would say can can you just turn off the tap a little bit but then then this one case came in and it had like hundred and twenty domain names. And, and we could kind of see it in the pipeline, and I think everyone was sort of bracing for, you know, who's going to have to handle this really big case. At the time, it was the biggest ever. Yeah. And I remember you and I kind of joking about, we should volunteer to take it, and we'll kind of be legends, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go down <laughs> I remember, and I remember center history. That, yeah. and, and you so, got that case. So we, we volunteered for it, and, and, and it was, I mean, it, it ran its normal course, but... Um, you know, I think it, it was clear that we were willing to kind of roll up our sleeves and yeah. and, uh, and and you know do the work. And then, while this was all happening, 
I was working a little bit on some arbitration cases, and then ICANN, um, which is this body out of the U.S. That, that effectively kind of runs the back end of the Internet, um, for lack of a better way to put it, they launched this program where they were going to add to .com, they were going to add .whatever, uh, .web, .microsoft, and, and there were some policy questions about, well, you have the UDRP now, which allows brand owners to tackle infringement of their rights online, but when this universe expands, is this going to scale? Do we need new mechanisms? So on and so forth. So I ended up uh, joining a small group that was working on, on that policy and ended up over time kind of completely shifting gears into that. Yeah. So that, I think, was what kept me around for, for the five and a half years that I was here. I had um, I had an opportunity come up to join a consulting firm. They're part of a corporate domain name registrar, so they, they work with brands, and, and so they would, they would kind of help manage their domain name portfolios and a lot of the security aspects around that. And the kind of sister company to that worked on uh, new GTLD applications yeah. for .brands, so .microsoft, .cartier, .amazon, this sort of thing, .hsbc. And so I came along after uh, this program had kind of formally launched, but there was a lot of maintenance to do uh, with you know, drafting up terms and conditions for now that you've applied for and are going to have this piece of internet real estate, what are the rules going to be for yeah. your for your new online space? Also working with our clients and ICANN to kind of, uh, <coughs> sorry, draft some specific contract terms because I can't, you know, if you, you look at normally people, they think of domain names as, you know, I, let's say I, I want to make a blog or I have a small business, so I go to GoDaddy and I get something something.com and, yeah. and, and it all kind of happens seamlessly and, and people know about that .com world. But, and so I can really had a, a, a suite of contracts that were geared towards that kind of one size fits all. People were just in the business of, of selling domain names and, and providing the infrastructure around that. And so we worked with them to kind of tailor some specific parts of, of their, their base contract for the, the new clients who would be brand owners who weren't going to be necessarily trying to compete with the dot-coms. They were going to have a, a dot-brand, and they might Super. use it for, you know, only internal purposes, or they might use it for, you know, a specific ad campaign, or if you're a bank, you might use it for a secure login portal. So it was really just trying to kind of adjust things a little bit for some new entrance to the to the domain space. So it was interesting work for you because you got to see the other side, like the, the other side of the domain name world. And how do you think uh, now that was already a couple of years behind, how do you think this turned out to be? Was it successful, the new UTLD program? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really difficult question in a way. It's also very simple. I think um, it depends on who you ask. I would say it's it's been a, a kind of a maybe a slow success would be the way to describe it. I wouldn't certainly say it's been a failure, although some people might say that. Um, but let's be honest: you had you had one incumbent player with effectively a monopoly.com, yeah. and you had 
people who wanted, there were kind of several main buckets. So you had people who would apply for .web or .music or something like this who wanted to kind of try to come along and compete with .com for some of that internet real estate. Then you had others which were more geographic, so you might have a, a city like Geneva apply for .geneva, and, and you know they might use that either for tourism or for their you know services to their citizens, that sort of thing. Uh, and then and then you had others who were were brands, and so they were looking at maybe it could be a more secure space. So there, if you're a bank and you have uh, .hsbc, if you have you know login .hsbc, then you know nowadays there's I mean, working in this space, having seen thousands of, of these cyber squatting cases over the years, it's astonishing to me how much fraud there is online. Yes. And I, you know, you go on your phone or on your email at home and you look in your spam box. Every other day I've got emails from Amazon and Apple telling me I have to reset my password or I've won this or that. It's, it's frankly, it's near impossible to keep up this with. Is, this affects everyone, like even sophisticated users. I mean, that was a, the whole thing behind the hacking of the, the campaign emails. And yeah. we're supposed to be sophisticated users. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I was at a conference, I guess, about a, um, a year ago now. And I was with an audience of, it turned out to be a lot of patent attorneys in the audience. So I was giving a presentation on uh, kind of an update on, on what was going on with domain names and ICANN and trademarks. And because I had understood that the audience wasn't really practitioners in this space, just to kind of set the scene a little bit, I did reference this example exactly, which was that the, the, the DNC email hack was basically, uh, I, I can't remember the exact specifics, but it was someone who thought uh, an email or a web address was legitimate yeah. and it wasn't, and, and that set off a whole chain of events. Nowadays, it's getting even more sophisticated where uh, these these bad guys are using um, homographs, or, or they call them, I think, um, where they're, they're kind of an a international version. So it could be that the, the, the Greek letter for yeah. something looks like a, a Latin I, and to the naked eye, when you're on your phone especially, you simply can't tell the difference. Yeah, and so these sure. scams are getting more and more sophisticated. And now there seems to be even more... I guess before there were not many cases, UDRP cases regarding this. But now there's uh, many of them are exclusively this. Yeah, I think, you know, just sort of off the top of my head, when we first started, this was back in 2007, um, there was still a large number of cases were, um, they were just domain names that were going to pay-per-click sites. Yes. Yeah. And there was a lot of revenue behind that. I remember... Um, reading the response in a case where they had actually walked the panel through why they landed on these particular results. So they had tried, um, you know, search terms going to, this was, I think, Giggles was the, was the yeah. domain name. And so they had tried uh, links going to uh, comedy clubs or, or, you know, Netflix specials for comedians that wouldn't have existed at the time. But <laughs> They, so they tried different different um, pay-per-click algorithms, and they landed on one which was a sex store. And they got they were getting, I think, for the low end, they were getting a little under a dollar, and for the high end, four dollars per click. So, you know, back then, and you still see some cases nowadays with pay-per-click sites, but back then these were a lot of the cases. Yeah, but now, 
I would say off the top of my head, maybe 15 or 20 percent of the cases are kind of pure fraud. Yeah, so you have fake invoices, fake emails, people masquerading as, you know, the HR department of a company, whether they're sending that email externally or even internally and people getting fooled. Um, so it, it, you really need to stay on your toes nowadays. And this is also makes me wonder the UDRP has been in place for what uh, 15 20 years 20 now years, yeah. 20 years and the UDRP was when it was drafted I don't think that they conceived that this was going to be the reality do you think it's still do you think that the UDRP is capable as it is to serve uh, this for example fraud cases and many other new uh, cases that uh, are coming up now or do you think it needs to be updated to reflect this new... Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, in a way, it's, it's, it's okay, uh, because when I say okay, I mean it's able to address these, these new types of fraud, because if you look at the UDRP, uh, there's, there's several different requirements that have to be met, but I think really a lot of cases hinge on um, uh, the kind of final paragraph of the bad faith section, yeah. which is, are in effect, it's are you trying to masquerade as someone else and 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 confuse people and defraud them, and so I think it was written in a way that was sufficiently broad, where it provided a framework yeah. and it provided some illustrations, but it it has been able to evolve with some of this this bad behavior that's been evolving, um, as. You probably know there's a review effort that started about three years ago, amazingly now, uh, to look at different rights protection mechanisms uh, such as the UDRP. And this is happening in ICANN. And so, so far, they've only been looking at the specific mechanisms that were developed for this new GTLD program. So the idea was uh, the UDRP works. It's great, but it's not going to scale across thousands of new top-level domains and hundreds of millions of new domain names. Uh, obviously, we don't have quite the numbers that people initially thought. Um, but certainly, the idea of, of whether it scales is a relevant one. And of course, you know, it's also worth putting yourself in the brand owner's shoes, which is nowadays, you know, you look around and it sort of, uh, you know, goes without saying that people are having to watch their enforcement budgets, HR budgets, you name it. Everybody, uh, you know, whatever type of company of all shapes and sizes, uh, you're being asked to do less with more and, and watch the budget. And, and certainly that goes also for, for enforcement. Uh, but just because the enforcement budget is, is static or even shrinking doesn't mean that the amount of abuse is, is shrinking. In fact, it's probably Increasing, growing. Yeah. Um, and so uh, one of the ways that they, that they sought to address that was to kind of take the UDRP model and make an even more efficient uh, mechanism, which was, which was modeled off the UDRP. That really hasn't quite got the traction that people thought it would, and, and that's mainly because under the UDRP, if you successfully go through one of these cases, you actually take the name and you keep it off the grid from other from other infringers. Whereas with this other mechanism, the URS that was developed specifically for new GTLDs, the name simply gets canceled, which means someone else can re-register it. In fact, that doesn't seem to be happening as often as you might suspect. Um, but certainly, it's a it's a possibility and it's a risk that brand owners have to kind of constantly monitor. Um, so there there is a question of you know. How do you meet the 
the continued and even enhanced concerns of the brand owners, uh, which at the end of the day, you know, they're bringing these cases because they want to avoid their customers, their own uh, staff, you know, being confused, being mm-hmm. defrauded. How do you match their enforcement concerns with, you know, their budgetary concerns and with an ever-expanding domain name system? So we'll see. We're we're in the beginning phases of uh, starting to think about the UDRP review. We haven't actually formally started, uh, started that process yet. We the the way that the work was was kind of parsed out was the first phase would look at these specific mechanisms for new GTLDs. Then the second phase would look at the UDRP. That looks like it probably will start sometime early next year. So maybe a year from now. Um, but certainly people have already been sort of testing the waters with uh, positions on, on policy views on the URS, which, you know, like I say, was modeled on the EDRP. Uh, and, and I think we can already sort of forecast a little bit what people might be asking for when it comes to the EDRP review. But in the meantime, I mean, you, you keep breaking records with more cases. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's something that really... Um, you know, we're surprised as anyone. We 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 hear from brand owners that they're that they have budgetary concerns, and I and I have no reason to believe that's not uh, true. I think what it means is that they're more focused. Yeah. Uh, we don't see as many pay-per-click cases nowadays. We see more pure fraud cases. So obviously, the the types of behavior that they're targeting are changing, and they're having to really go after the worst of the worst. Um, mm, so. Now that you, so after this experience that you had uh, working with this consultancy, you came back to WIPO. How, how, how has your role changed? What, are you, what is your main role now that you're back here at WIPO? Well, so when I left, I, was, I had sort of completely shifted gears off of doing case management. Um, this is the job that you and I came here to do originally and was doing uh, pretty much exclusively policy work. Yeah. When I left at the at the consulting firm in London, I was also doing mainly policy work, and it was the thing that I really loved about it was it was a kind of a hybrid of of policy and practical. Uh, obviously, what we were doing was was for a purpose. When I came back here, the role effectively combines so that the guy who was doing this role, David, uh, who you and I both know well, uh, left, went back uh, with his family in Australia. And so when he left this position, he vacated kind of, let's say, the operational side. And the policy side had been left behind. And so this current role combines uh, both the operations and the policy. I, I tend to spend most of my day-to-day time on uh, on either the policy or, let's say, high-level operations, so not necessarily uh, coming alongside a case manager and helping with an email in a particular case, although I, I still do that on almost a regular basis. Um, but we have a good team of five or six uh, supervisors. These are people that have been here, you know, in some cases 10 or 12 years, who are, are kind of the, the glue that holds the team together. And so they really run the operations on a daily basis, everything from, you know, assigning the cases to, you know, the HR aspects, that sort of thing. And so I, I tend to kind of support them by, in some ways, coming alongside and seeing, you know, 
whether it's on a particular substantive issue or maybe it could be an IT or an HR related issue, trying to kind of identify are there are there patterns emerging where we need to kind of think of a new solution, uh, solution that we 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 apply on a more you know global scale rather than a than a piecemeal mm. basis. Good. Uh, well, it seems that you have your hands full with this uh, in the new role. Uh, just before closing, and thank you for this uh, really wonderful conversation. I mean, we already touched upon it, but is there something? that you could encapsulate in some advice for any young, upcoming lawyer that wants to get into this world? Is something that... Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's important to have an open mind. I mean, you know, like we've discussed here today, neither you or I really had our sights on, on landing here in Geneva and working in WIPO and and domain names. So I think keeping an open mind is important. You never know uh, where things are going to lead you. I think another thing that's important is really just being willing to roll up your sleeves and and uh, and, and do good hard work. Um, you know, like the example I mentioned earlier, where the guy who was doing real estate law ended up, you know, being an agent uh, for for some movie stars. People, you know people that you're working with, whether it's your, you know, the guy in the office next door or your boss or your boss's boss, uh, hard work doesn't go unnoticed. Yeah. And, and equally, uh, laziness doesn't go unnoticed. <laughs> uh, so, so I would say, you know, my main piece of advice would be to, on the one hand, put your head down and, and do good work and really invest yourself and, and take things seriously. And look, let's be honest, we all have good and bad days. We, we wax and wane in our, our attention and love for something, but you have to try to, through it all, you know, be seen as a steady hand. And another thing I think is important is, and, and this is something that I've talked with my, my youngest brother, who's also an attorney uh, working in, in policy outside of D.C. Uh, for the past few years, is, uh, you know, stop into your boss's office and, and volunteer to, you know, help out with something. If you see there's a project and, and you might see that they could use an extra pair of hands, uh, express some willingness to, to chip in there. Right. And, and look, that means sometimes you're going to be having to put in some extra hours, but these are the, these are the things that, that get noticed. I can say certainly on our team, people that, that show an interest in the subject matter, a willingness to kind of go a little bit above and beyond, Um, that that really registers. So really, you know, I guess I would say the ball's in your court. Yeah, uh, that, that's good advice. Uh, thank you, Brian. It was a really nice conversation. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.